our entire lives being raised in the LDS church, we are taught to be missionaries to everyone, to stand on the rooftops and proclaim the truth to the entire world. Just because somebody leaves the LDS church doesn't mean that the idea of sharing what they believe to be true would instantly shut off. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Melissa. I grew up in the FLDS community. It is a polygamous group run by Warren Jeffs, and I moved out when I was 18 years old. I was raised LDS. Sam and I have been married for nine years and have two awesome kiddos. Yes, we do. If you're interested in just listening in today, we do have our podcast available. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. Today, we are so excited to be covering the final, it's kind of bittersweet, the final Peter Santanello video on Mormonism. Um, if you have been tuned in with us this whole time, thank you so much. Yes, it's been fun to you. react to every single one of his videos, including our own, yeah, <laughs> which was a little too. funny. <laughs> but um, we, this is the last one in his Mormonism series, and it's from an ex-Mormon. So this one, we didn't even sneak peek it. Some of the other ones we kind of like, oh, watched a little bit. And this one, I was like, no, let's keep this one really raw. I'm very... I don't know, excited and also nervous about this one more right. than the others. We don't know how this ex-Mormon is going to go about his telling his side of the story. Is he going to be super bitter? Is he going to be more neutral? From what angle is he coming from? We don't know yet because we don't like to bash on people's beliefs. So we're a little bit nervous about how this is going to go, but we're hoping for the best and we will try to chime in and add our little comments along the way. Yes. And this one, obviously, I was raised mainstream LDS. And for those who don't know, because I, th I think sometimes people ask that or wonder, mm -hmm. we have left the LDS church, but we don't talk about it in this huge like negative way. Like We didn't have negative experiences with the church. It was purely a doctrinal decision for us in like right. what our beliefs lined up with. And so we don't have a lot of that bitter and anger towards it that I feel like when people think, oh, people leave the church and then they're just so angry and they hate it and they this and that. And so for those of you who knew that, sorry to repeat it, for those of you who didn't or thought that we still were in, we always take that as a huge compliment because it means that we don't come across in a negative way towards the LDS church. And that's our goal with, you know, with that. So Anyway, yeah. we'll see what this video has to based, bring. Based on the other videos that Peter has done with the people within the fundamentalist Mormon groups and the mainstream Mormon groups, he has chosen people that seem to be fairly neutral. So maybe this is what we'll, maybe that's what we'll see here once again is my best guess, but we're about to find out. So yeah. looking forward to it. Here we go. Did you Arizona. ever go to this temple? Yeah, this was, quote-unquote, my temple growing up. Mesa, all right. So what was it like growing up in the church? It was wonderful. Uh, I grew up in a congregation, what we call a ward, that was super tight-knit. Back then in Mesa, there was tons of LDS, and our congregation was so concentrated where it only consisted of four residential streets. So... Okay, two things. Sorry, already. We're already like, we're not even a couple seconds into it. But Whoa. Arizona has probably the most densely populated Mormon group next to Utah itself. Mm -hmm. um, so what he's saying about the fact that there's there's a lot of LDS people in Arizona, very, very true. And then when he's talking about wards, so congregations, unlike other Christian churches where you kind of go to whatever church feels best or whatever one is like, 
I guess a lot of, maybe the Catholic church or people who are churches that are very large would do the same where you go to the closest geographical location. Mm -hmm. That's how it is with the LDS churches. So each ward has boundaries, physical boundaries, and it's very highly encouraged. I won't say mandatory, but it's very highly encouraged. You go to that ward that wherever you're living, that's the church that you go to at a certain time, at a certain place, and... That's how they keep everything organized. It's recommended to the point, though, that if you're not attending the one you're assigned to, I guess you could say, you will have people asking you why, right? Yeah. Like, it's not just like, oh, do whatever, and no one will ever ask you, no. well, hey, why aren't you coming and to the And church leaders, they have your records, too. So mm-hmm. your records will be sent to wherever your geographical location is. And so that church leadership will be reaching out and saying, you know, hey, we have your records here. Is there a reason why you're not coming to church here? And it's very mm-hmm. rare that you go to church outside that unless it's to visit somebody or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and they draw a geographical line. In some cases, it's fairly rare, but in places like Utah where there are so many church buildings, some people actually have to go to a church building farther away than the closest one to them to get to the one they are technically assigned to. So sometimes that does happen. That does. And so when he says that there is enough, so wards, they break up these geographical boundaries based on the number of active members that are coming to church. And wards, they typically keep to, I feel like in Utah, it was about 300 Ish, yeah. Ish members that are actively going to come to church, right? And then if it got too big and the wards grew to a certain point, they would actually have ward splits and they would change the ge- geographical location and say, okay, now it's here so that their congregations always stayed within a, a reasonable size. So when he says that geographically there's only four streets mm-hmm. and there's enough members in that to make a full ward, that's a huge deal. That means that pretty much every single person on those four streets is going to be LDS to make those 300 members within those four streets. Depending on how long the streets are, but yes. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> if it's going through the whole town. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it was densely populated. Yeah. Basically, almost every single home in that neighborhood was LDS. When you're eight years there old, the church influences you to decide to become a member. But as an adult... Uh, an eight-year-old doesn't have the maturity to make such a decision, nor do you realize what kind of decision um, you're making. A lot of it is, is like you're seeing your older siblings uh-huh. or your, your friends who are members in your ward all get baptized. Okay. And so you're like, that sounds cool. I want to do that. Sure. Okay, first controversial topic. Yes, this is very controversial. (laughs) Let's go with our experiences first. What was your experience like? Were you baptized when you were eight years old? I was baptized when I was eight years old. And at that time, you do feel like it is your decision. So I understand his point because hindsight's 2020, right? Mm -hmm. And you can say this, that, the other about whether or not eight years old is old enough to consent to something. However, they normally, when you're raised in the LDS church, you're going to primary from the time that you're three. So if you ask, and these eight-year-olds, we go, you go into an interview with the bishop and he's asking you questions about, it's not so much about worthiness as much as understanding what baptism is, why it's necessary, things like that. And at eight years old, I could tell you that I knew exactly why I wanted to be baptized, what baptism meant to me, what it meant for my salvation, Um, why I was following the example of Jesus Christ and being baptized. And so as much as it is tradition 
and it's not like an eight-year-old is really going to go against their parents. I say that in any religion or any type of way of thinking at eight years old, you're going to follow what your parents' way of thinking is. And that's natural and normal, no matter what environment you're raised in. At eight years old, you have the beliefs of your parents, right? But in addition to that, when you're raised in the LDS church, you go to church and you're learning probably so much more than a lot of I can't say other Christian churches because people who go to church every Sunday and their kids are going to Sunday school every single week, they're going to have a vast amount of knowledge (laughs) instilled in them from a very young age as to why they're doing what they're doing. So, But at eight years old, going to the LDS church, you're being taught a lot of why it's important to be baptized. Yes. So you're saying you felt like you knew why. I felt like I knew why, and I 100% at eight years old, and I would still even say now, I felt like it was still my choice. Okay, that's, that's what yeah. was going to be my next question. Did you feel like at any point after being baptized, when you got a little bit older, that you thought, oh... I really didn't know what I was doing or what I was getting into. No, 100%. I felt like I knew what I was getting into. Again, as an adult and as an outsider, it goes, that's crazy that an eight-year-old could make such a big decision. And I understand his perspective. But I think you don't have that perspective until you leave it because at eight years old, you are going to do whatever you're taught. Right. As long as you're still believing in that belief, you think, how grateful am I? that mm-hmm. I had parents that taught me the importance of being baptized and how grateful am I that I was baptized into this truth, right? As you, exactly. would, as you would think, right? Yep. So for you. Well, for me, I was eight years old and baptized in the FLDS <laughs> church. So the fundamentalist polygamous group. And it was still the same rule that once you reach eight years old, you are baptized. But it was also very important, I was taught as a young age that it was very important that you understood why. So I had parents, specifically my mother, that would teach me and just, I mean, man, the amount of time spent of her teaching me why it was important, I felt like, geez, I mean, I could be baptizing people at that point. I felt ready. (laughs) I felt ready. And I understood it to the point that after I was baptized, I was determined to do no wrong. That I was the same to way. never sin again. Because <laughs> we were taught that at that point, when you were baptized, all of your sins, anything that you had done up to that point, was forgiven, washed away, clean slate. You're ready to go. And I'll tell you what, I was very good at doing my chores. <laughs> I was very obedient. <laughs> I was determined to do no wrong. And so I feel like because of that, I had a pretty good understanding, at least in in the eyes of my parents and what they believed, I understood what they believed. And so I felt that I made that decision by my own. Of course, highly influenced by my siblings and my older, my, you know, my older siblings and my parents and all of that. But I think so, all choices at eight, year old, at eight years old, all choices are heavily influenced, if not completely influenced by your parents. All the way up into your adulthood and on until forever, you know, <laughs> based on your environment, your decisions are highly affected by your surrounding environment. So I don't think that that is uncommon at all. Yes. And again, I feel like this is something that when you leave the church, you look at it and from an outsider's perspective and all of you, you know, if you haven't been raised in the environment, it's very easy to recognize that eight years old is not old enough to consent to an eternal covenant 
Okay. So I will acknowledge that. I totally understand it. However, we just want to point out that in the moment and when you're in it, you're not, when he says, okay, well, you're just kind of convinced of it. It's deeper than that for you personally. Even at eight years old, it's deeper than I only want to do it because my older siblings are doing it. Normally you're taught in a way that you really truly desire it. Now, now swinging to the other side here because we like to we like to take it from both sides and so <laughs> we're to, never going to get through this video <laughs> <laughs> sorry this is going to be like a five-hour video we'll try to cut it down to his point what's his name again i'm sorry i already forgot his name todd todd we'll we'll remember as we hear it more but to his point there are now this is not doctrinal to the mormon church at all but Maybe he heard some similar things that I was told from people that had fairly high callings in the church, that at eight years old, you are covenanting and you are promising to follow God, his commandments, and at that point, this is what I was told, you give up your agency. You had your choice. Your agency was to choose to be baptized and follow the example of Jesus Christ. You so, got to say who you were told this by because that holds more weight. It it does. It, I was told this by a mission president. Yeah, when he was on his mission, a mission president told him that... At eight years old, you choose to follow Jesus Christ, and that was your agency. That was your big decision. And after that point, you no longer, you no longer had that free agency because you have committed to that. Now you have to do it. So if, if Todd here heard similar things, that's where you could say whoa, you're not old enough to make a decision for the rest of your life like that. 100%. And and so anyway, that's just the other side of it. But once again, that's not church doctrine. That's just, but it came from someone that was holding a very, very high calling in the church. (laughs) So as a church member, you're going to respect that and you're going to look at it as it is truth when it's coming from someone with such a high calling. Yes. And so... Yeah. And obviously, too, like us going around trying to be perfect afterwards when we were eight, I don't know if that kind of pressure and that kind of that mentality is necessarily healthy for an eight-year-old either, right? Like we both felt that and we both went through that. I wouldn't want my child to feel that. But it doesn't mean that in our circumstances being raised in it that we thought that that was hard or bad for us to have no and i don't feel like there was any i don't feel like there was any harm being done by me being baptized when i was eight no harm was done to me by having that tradition you know same with in the catholics like if you get baptized as a baby do you grow up and you're like wow because i was baptized as a baby against my own consent against my own will i don't know catholics leave in the comments whether or not you feel like something was taken away from you because you weren't old enough to make that full decision for yourself or is it something that is a tradition it's a tradition it is a commitment to your family's faith and and, and that's harmless. What, that's what you have to remember too is it's parents doing it because they feel that that is what is best for you it will save you it will help you however you want to look at it it's parents trying to do the best they can for their children you cannot complain about that yeah and you can't blame them for that or at least we don't feel like you should if that's what they truly believe right yeah yeah and then with, with Mormonism, there's always a progression. There's always the next thing. So the church gives you roles early on in life, especially for boys. When I was young, the expectation was to go on a mission when you're 19 years old. You spend two years doing that. Roadmap after that is then you get married. And this is the place you get married is 
a temple. What the church does is it creates a roadmap for you. It's all planned out, so. So you did all those steps. You did, did all those steps. You did your mission. Yep, you I came back, got married. Got married, so I, the word the we, we, I can't help but say the we, we say, I say the word we sometimes, but um, I served in Taiwan. So I lived in Taiwan for two years, learned Chinese. Oh, wow. Lots cool. of I say we all the time when I'm referencing my, the church. Mm -hmm. um, even even though we no longer attend church, I still, you That's can't. That's why so many people ask, are you guys active? <laughs> that probably. It's probably because I say we all the time when yeah. I'm talking about Mormonism. <laughs> I feel like you can take the person out of Mormonism, but you can't take the Mormonism out of the person. Yeah, to some extent, for to sure. To some extent, for sure. So, And when he talks about a roadmap, I mean, we're taught that that's such a huge blessing to have a roadmap, to have a direction, a direction yeah. to go in your life and mm -hmm. understand your purpose. And from a very young age, like when I taught, well, I didn't teach primary. I was the chorister for primary for four years. So I was in charge of teaching the kid, the children in the wards, the songs mm. and the songs would always go along with principles and messages that we wanted the children to learn. Right. But like having that guidance and the footsteps to be able to follow and to following Christ's example, as well as following what we believe is Christ's church. Again, we see, yeah, but yeah. we <laughs> believe it's Christ's church. Having that roadmap is considered the biggest blessing in your life to know what God wants you to do and how to safely return back to him was always something I enjoyed as a as yeah. a child and an no, adult. It's true, though. I mean, this roadmap that he's talking about is very true. The, you know, you grow up, you get baptized, and then you serve a mission at 19. Now it's 18. That age has changed. And it's 19 for the girls now, right? Yeah. So 18 for the boys, 19 for the girls to serve missions. And then to his point, once you return from your mission, getting married is the number one. Number the one number one priority, yes. Yeah. And there are lots of steps, too, in between those big steps. Those are kind of the big steps. There are lots of steps like receiving the priesthood for boys. Um, there are special medallions and things that you can earn in young women's as a young girl, you know, and there's all these extra things to be able to help keep you on what they would call the covenant path. And I believe even we received something recently for the primary in our current ward. And I think they even said that that's like the, the theme is how to, keep children on the covenant path that's mm. what they're calling it as well the church is calling it the covenant path so following so, the following the it's the from one covenant yeah up. it's yeah. one covenant to the next right yeah. a covenant being a two-way promise with god you make that at baptism you make that when you get your endowments taken out when you serve a mission in mm -hmm. the temple ordinances and covenants and then again in sealing so that's what it's called. That's a good point you make there before serving a mission girls or boys they attend the temple yep. before that yep Lots of ch uh, challenges, but I love the experience. And years, years after that, it's these steps right here. Uh -huh. Perfect timing in our walk here. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, this is the entrance to the temple. Traditionally, at this temple is family gathers right here. And so when the ceremony is done, the bride and groom comes out those gold doors, and it's a big celebration. Doing these things leads to happiness and. The, the goal of it all is to return to our Father in Heaven in the Celestial Kingdom, which is another way of saying like the top level of Heaven. You must do all those things from being baptized, doing the rituals in the temple, then being married in the temple, 
and living a good, clean life and doing all the things. Okay. Lots of work your entire life. Sure. And um, your hope is that you qualify to dwell with your Father in Heaven or God. I was just going to ask, where's all the people? I know that couple. <laughs> uh, funny. It, you just, in, in Mormonism, uh, and I say that in a loving way, everyone knows everyone. It's been four That's years true. since we left the church. Time heals wounds. And so it used to be very raw and just painful. I want to emphasize that. It's a, it's a painful experience uh, leaving such a, what it looks like a happy, joyful, very uh, fulfilling um, life. I'm glad he mentions that, that it is painful. And also I want to emphasize what people mean when they say the word leaving the church, because it means a lot. It, it's very different within mainstream Mormonism than what it was for like Sam oh, and yeah. the FLDS. So for Sam, leaving the church meant leaving family, friends, <laughs> home, everything, work, job, all that stuff was left behind. Yeah. It meant fit like a physical removal. Right? right. So, and that's how it is in a lot of polygamous groups within Mormonism, where it's this physical removal. I have to remove myself from this place, from these people, from this family, all those type of things. Within mainstream Mormonism, when we say leave the church, or even when I say that Sam and I, you know, have left the church, mm -hmm. all that means is that you choose to no longer believe the church doctrines. And that is leaving. It's more of a spiritual leaving than what it is a physical one. Although I can say maybe the physical part of leaving is that you're no longer attending church meetings. Right. That would be considered leaving. So you're not leaving your community. You're not leaving your home. You don't even have to leave the church in a way as in like taking your records out. Like, um, There's many different levels of leaving too. Many that's true. Like there's, there's, there's people that become less active is the first step, right? Less active, <laughs> meaning... They attend once in a blue moon. They maybe they go to some of the activities in the church, but they're not always there for everything. The the ones that are really strong and active, those are the ones that are there for every church meeting, there for every activity. And then you have the so so you have active, and then you have less active. Less uh, active would be, and there's actually like a certain number of times that they have to take your role in church in order for you to be considered a less active and an inactive member. Right. So I believe if you are going to church once a month, a month you're considered less active. Yeah. Right? And then if you start going less than that, then there, then you're inactive. And we taught a lot of inactive people on my mission in Chile, trying to get people to come back to church. So, and there's inactive people, but they're not really, they're not really saying that uh, I, I no longer belong to the church if they're inactive. I mean, they can, but not necessarily. Like, they could still claim to be members of the church. They're still, you know, I still go to church. I still, or I still belong to the church, but they're just not attending. And a lot of, a lot of times, you'd hear people in those situations. They'll be like, "I feel like the church doesn't fit in with my life right now." Mm -hmm. Things like that. People, you'll hear things like that. And we've had people that have tried to tell us, like, "Well, can't you just say that it's not for you right now?" <laughs> We're like, "Well, that's not why we." unquote left right like that's not our position in just oh it's just not for us right now and maybe mm -hmm. we'll go back to church later that's not our circumstance but that is also common right and yeah. that was pretty a common thing to say in the mission field as well as missionaries we would go up to someone and, and uh, say 
hey, I haven't seen you around for a while. And they'd be like, oh, we're no longer members of the church. And we would say, oh, yeah, you are. You're on a record right here. You're members, right? <laughs> and I don't know that that was very, a very respectful thing to say to them or not, depending on where they felt that they were at that time. But so that leads to the next step. People can actually, people that don't want to be associated in any way and never hear from the church again, they can actually get their name removed from the record of the church. And that is when you become a non-member. Uh, like officially in the records and everything, you're no longer a member. Yes. And that's considered a, a pretty big deal to make that full separation from the church. Yeah. And you actually have to do it through a lawyer. Yeah. to go and get your name, your record removed. And I, I will say that getting baptized at eight, that is what creates your record with the church. So there's two different kind of records. When you bless a baby in the church, they're like on the records as they're the children of people typically who are members. And then, but once they're eight, if they're not baptized, then that blessing record kind of goes away. Not goes away, but like they're not going to invite your children to primary or things like that. Like at eight, they, it's either you're like getting baptized and your name's going to be on the record and you're like officially in the records of the church or you're not and they then would consider you a non-member. But that's completely a decision made by the parents. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, the child. But the parents have to be okay with it if in order for their child to be baptized, right? Like the church, the church looks for that consent, right? That they don't just go... No one's going to come into your house and snag your ch child and be like, baptize, you know, you're eight <laughs> years old, you got to go. No, no. It's, it's not like that. Another way to get your records removed from the church or your name removed from the church records is to be excommunicated. And that is to go against the church in some way. There's different reasons that that would be caused, but fighting against the church, teaching... Sexual impurity. Sexual impurity, teaching false doctrine about the church, things like that. You could actually receive a letter from church headquarters or... I'm not exactly sure how that works. It's, it's a whole process, actually. So they can't just send you a letter that says like, okay, now you're excommunicated. Right. From what I understand, they have disciplinary, they have councils that they would invite you and say, okay, well, now you have to go to the disciplinary council but, and then you go. But that first letter would come from headquarters, right? Saying that you need dis to go. disciplinary council or, or, or would you hear, hear from local? I think it's from okay. a stake level. But yeah, you have a disciplinary council within your like local... Uh, I wanted to say government, that's not the right word, local leadership. <laughs> uh -huh. And then you would go there and they would kind of talk to you about why you said the things you said or did the things you did and whether or not you want to repent for those things and what that process would look like and whether or not... Anyway, so there's a it's lot a to deal. excommunications, but it's a very big deal to be excommunicated because the church cutting ties with you rather than you cutting ties with the church is a whole different ball game. And yeah, people that have gone through it can tell you that it's a pretty right. awful experience. The biggest two categories would be the active members of the church and the inactive member of the church, yeah. members of the church. Those are going to be the two main categories of people that are that still have their records on the church, uh, in the church records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then him saying that it is very painful. Again, because most of leaving the church or even just choosing to become inactive, meaning that you're not going to church anymore, especially when it comes down to it's because of your belief system, that is very painful, mostly because, like we said, there's a very clear path, very clear path on how to get back to Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. And within Mormonism, it's believed that the LDS Church has the clear and the one straight and narrow path. 
way back to God. And if it's not that path, then you can't return back to him. And these other paths might be good, like other Christians might have good paths, but they can't actually get you all the way back to living with God. Right. Um, No other religion can. It's the one and only true religion that has the full path all the way back to him. And so because of that, leaving that, no matter how much you disagree with certain doctrines or know in your heart that you don't believe certain things within the church, if you've been taught that your whole life, that that's the only way to get to God, it's going to be painful for that to dissolve and for you to rebuild what your new path looks like. Because when you've always had that guidance, not having it anymore is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. It was interesting for me because I was born into that one and only right path back to God. And then I found a different path and jumped out and jumped into the other path. You know, it, it, people ask me, and, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that happens when you know something so full-heartedly and then you realize or you learn something new, you learn something more, and you completely switch that mindset. It is very difficult, I will say. Coming from the FLDS at age 18, you know, it took a long time to finally realize, oh, that, that does, that's not what I want. That's not the truth. And then I joined the mainstream LDS church and once again felt like I had the one and only true path back to God. So, you know, that's a that's a whole other video about how my mind worked and how that actually <laughs> came about, you know, and how, how I could go about that direction. Life is an interesting thing. You're constantly learning. You're constantly growing. At least I hope, you know, that's that's what you can hope is that you're always learning and growing. But... But yeah, it's just a very painful process to come to the realization that something you knew so full-heartedly might not be the only truth. And people think that because we went on our spiritual journey path together, which we're super lucky to have gotten to do that together, they think that a lot of times our reasoning would be the same. I always explain it as like, we always knew the pages that each other were on and we were in the same book, but our reasoning and our pages were still completely separate. And like Sam said, his experience already having left a religion before was completely different than me where I had been in the same religion my whole life up to the point of our faith transition. So for him, some of those processes, they just look different. It looked different for him to, to leave. Mm -hmm. And I'd say even the heartbreak and stuff was a little bit different. And maybe, I mean, I don't want to say that my pain ran a little bit deeper with the LDS, but I feel like the disappointment. I would agree with that. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I had already kind of experienced that before, you know, of knowing. I would say the leaving the FLDS at age 18 ran a lot deeper for me because, you you know, when you're raised and you're taught your entire life, like you said, then you're you are a, a thousand percent in and convinced of it. Yeah. And anyway, so and that's how not, I. Oh, go ahead. Not not to say that the that leaving the LDS church was easy by any means for me, uh, but it was just a different process. Yeah, and for me, it was like very um, earth shattering, very 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 difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to get the left LDS story because a lot of people reached out to me. Okay. A lot. And they said, hey, look, if you're gonna do an LDS series, a lot of people have left. You really need... 
you to get that perspective. So fair enough, I wanna get that perspective. <laughs> but I've also noticed there's no one story for left yes. LDS. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I've heard everything from burn it all down right. to yeah, I left and I still hang out with all my Mormon friends and family and everything's cool. Mm -hmm. I yep. mean, the two extremes. Yep. And everything in between. And everything in between. Right. I can't emphasize this enough. I was 100% in it from birth until, you know, four plus years ago. When you feel that you have lost something, it's devastating and it's painful. And there's all the, all the emotions are valid. You know, anger, resentment, sadness. And for those who left the church who feel that, I, I respect it. Oftentimes, you lose um, friend associations. Oftentimes your family uh, will treat you differently. And I, I don't think Mormons do it overtly or on purpose, but it's kind of how they're um, been indoctrinated. The, the, the church leaders pin us as others, like President Nelson, I think it was almost a year ago in general conference, uh, called people like me a lazy learner. That's not very nice, right? Mm -hmm. And then just recently in conference, um, the most recent conference, he likened a person like myself as do not take advice from um, those who don't believe. The people who leave, they quickly realize that the love that they had from their parents or their siblings was conditional. The condition of love and being family was being a full, worthy, prosperous member of the church. Obviously, he's totally right about the extremes. There is such an extreme. I'd say the extremes, where people end up when they come out of it, typically comes down to their reasoning for why they came out of right. it. Right. It can be anything from, I mean, some of you might be like, why would they want to burn it down, right? If someone is sexually abused by a church leader and the church doesn't handle it properly, right? People are going to be angry and they have right. every right to be and they might want to burn it down then there's people who leave i mean just i'm just trying to give some examples so people can understand where different people come from right there might be someone who realized that the lifestyle isn't what they want it's not doctrines or anything they're just like the lifestyle and the rules just don't work for how i want yeah. and they might leave and they're just going to go live their lives and they're not going to really care about anything there's all sorts of different there's no one story no. and yeah, and because I feel like, too, a lot of times within the LDS church, there is the mold and a similar... Everybody has a different reason for why they join the church. But once they join the church, because everybody is supposed to be on such a specific path, a lot of those times you end up talking to members. Like, Peter could have interviewed a lot of different LDS oh, people. Yeah. And even the two, the family, the dinner, and with Brock, right? Both of those were great examples, and they both had very similar things to say because the church has a very limited and very particular view on the world and on life. Mm -hmm. And so there's not really a lot of space to veer off from that. So you're going to get very similar answers. And when it comes to talking to people who have left the church, it is the exact opposite. There is a plethora of reasons. And now people can also go in so many different directions because if you spent all your life on the straight and narrow path, and now there's the rest of the whole world and a million other paths to explore, you can find ex-Mormons on every single path in life from oh, the yes. deepest, darkest holes to the most prosperous, beautiful 
family. Like there's everything. And so I feel like it is, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that you will talk to will just say, oh, I just don't wanna go anymore. Just don't, I just don't think that it's for me, right? And then you have the other extreme, like you said, and that other extreme, a lot of people like to hate the extremists mm-hmm. because they say, why, when you leave, do you have to become so bitter, right? You and I are fortunate enough to not have to or need to feel that way, but there are certain circumstances where people have the right to be bitter, right? Yeah. We try to, we try to before we start judging everyone for their, for their decisions and, what, and the way they go about things, you need to understand where they're coming from first, right? I feel like a lot of times it's easy to jump to conclusions, jump to this, jump to that. Nobody knows what that other person has been through fully unless they are that person. Yeah. And so it just, it's not right to to instantly assume that everyone that leaves a religion or a church is going to automatically become haters of the church and and, and that they aren't, validated in that if they do become haters of the church. Now, that being said, once again, some people take it even so far to the extreme that they come across that everyone within that religion or within that church are these bad people. They're not willing to reciprocate any sort of respect. (laughs) Right. So you have to, so the person that is leaving needs to also try to find that uh, understanding that there's a lot of different people within that religion. Not all of them are going to treat you the way that other people treated you within that religion. So yeah. I feel like it's very similar to the FLDS. Yeah. Okay. You have people like Sam who leave the FLDS and he did have a good childhood. He left because of the lifestyle, not because he didn't believe doctrine, even though later he yep. chose to not believe it, right? Yep. He left because of the lifestyle. He has no bitterment or resentment towards the church, but he can still look at it and say, I don't believe that that's a church that leads back to God. Right. And I think that the church leaders are doing this, that, or that. Like, he can understand that and also say, I had a good experience while I was in it, and I chose to leave it for these reasons right. and not have the bitterness. The people, and you guys have seen many interviews on our channel of people who were abused, people who were hurt, and the way that they resent and feel sad and hurt and angry and want to rip every single person out of the FLDS and in their minds save them all from this religion, they are completely valid. They are just as valid in those feelings as what Sam is in the fact that he had a good experience. Mm -hmm. Both of those experiences can be valid. And within the LDS church, both of those experiences can also be valid. There's people who had such horrible experiences, either with people in the church, leadership in the church, the church doctrine itself, whatever that taught, that are so horrible that they deserve the right to be angry and feel like they want every person out of the church. And then there can be people like us who didn't have horrible experiences, felt like our experience within the LDS church was a net positive and good. And we left for doctrinal reasons. And we just said, oh, we don't believe the same doctrines that the LDS church does. Therefore, we're not going to prescribe to that religion anymore. And we have no hard feelings and we're just fine with people being in the church. Both of those are valid. Right. And I feel like a lot of times because the LDS church is so big, people don't want to validate both sides of that. Mm. You know, when you're looking at a small religion like the FLDS, it's easy to just be like, oh, I understand why they'd hate that. So 
just something to remind everyone to just be kind and that to understand that people's experiences are their own and that that's okay. And on this note, there was one other thing that you made me think of. When you're in the LDS church and you're raised in the LDS church, and I was talking to, it was actually my mom recently, and she's still active in the LDS church. She had a family friend that, you know, our family friends are very strong within the church, and they had one son who left and is very outspoken against the church. And, you know, my mom was just saying, you know, this child is breaking my friend's heart with how much he is going against the church. And I told her, I said, our entire lives being raised in the LDS church, we are taught to be missionaries to everyone to stand on the rooftops and proclaim the truth and proclaim the truth of the truthfulness of the gospel to the entire world not physical rooftops not physical rooftops just metaphor (laughs) to to proclaim that and to share that all the time if anyone has members of the church's friends you'll see on their social they're encouraged on their social media pages to proclaim the gospel and to share 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 just because somebody leaves the LDS church doesn't mean that the idea of sharing what they believe to be true would instantly shut off. Right. You don't stop feeling that need to share the truth. Now, if their truth is no longer what someone who's in the church's truth is, the people who are in the church are going to feel very much attacked. Mm-hmm. But they have to remember that they were taught that from a young age. And so to not try to spread what they believe to be true now would go against everything that they have been raised to believe. Right. Coming from both sides, if someone is sharing a something that they believe to be a fact as the ultimate and only truth, whether it's someone that is left and they're trying to tell people that are still in it, or someone that's in it and trying to tell people that don't have this blessing as they would think, it can come off very hurtful from either side if it is taught in a way that I have it, you don't. Yeah. You know, and it's not the way we go about things, obviously, but uh, but at the same time, we understand where both people are coming from. You know, oh, I'm just trying to bless the lives of others around me. Oh, I'm trying to save people that are stuck in this, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that any of those two people are going to get anywhere with their, I guess, message, message if it's coming across as, I have it, you don't, this is the only way, you don't, you don't have it. You, you know, that type of mentality. I think Peter did a good job in the video with Brock, and I can leave a link to our review of that video because Brock is a great example in light of, you know, a typical member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think at one point Peter said, you know, if, a, if someone who is Muslim came and tried to convince you to convert to that, would you be open to it? Do you think that they could convert you? And Brock, of course, was like, (laughs) of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Like, I'm too firm in my faith, right? Right. To do that. And then Peter asked, then why would you go and try to convert somebody who's Muslim into yours? What makes you think that their faith, you know? And I think that that kind of goes along with even ex-Mormons, you know? When you were in it, it's unlikely that somebody that was an ex-Mormon came and convinced you and dragged you out of it. Very unlikely that pretty much almost never happens, I would say, that somebody was convinced out of religious beliefs, right? right? It is a personal spiritual journey that can grow either way, right? Same with being convinced and becoming a member of the church, of the LDS church. It's not just, oh, well, someone just 
came and they convinced me. I was like, oh yeah, no, they have to have their own experiences. They have to have their own time. They have to have the right knowledge. Like it's all this culmination of all these experiences for people to join or to leave a religion. Right, yeah. And unfortunately, some families feel that they lost their son or daughter forever because that's what the doctrine teaches. <clears throat> so there's this irreparable thing where they lost you and the church will kind of start uh, emphasize that like you need to move on and we have pity for those who who who, le who leave and again there's going to be some members that will be upset with me saying that but um, that's the truth and that's uh, from the people that, I, that I've associated with who left uh, it's it's happened to some of them again not all but uh, to some of them and these criticisms that are are real and true mm -hmm. that members today hear um, they take personal offense to it like they think it's a personal attack on them okay and this message that we have is to the system to the church to the to the top leaders hmm. I think it's also the same again just comparing to the FLDS right a lot of times the members feel like they're being attacked when people say things about the church and most of the time especially we try to direct it to the leaders and say the people are good and the leaders in the church are the problem right within the flds right well and what, he, once oh. again you can't say that as a blanket blanket statement though i mean there's there are always going to be people within every organization yeah that are not good right but the overall view of things is the people within the religions are trying to live the way they were taught, trying to live good lives. And it is the leaders that are ultimately controlling that. Yeah. This is my high school. This is a Mesa High. This structure here, I've literally never seen before. It's brand new. So okay. constant improvements. Majority of my friendships were LDS kids. I had many that weren't, but that's just kind of how you're taught. You're, you stay with those who have the same values. This is the seminary building. So most schools in Arizona and Utah, Idaho, I'm guessing for sure. One hour a day, LDS students would cross the street and receive spiritual education or instruction. During the school day? During the school day. The school was okay with that? Yeah, they called it release time. You sign a little waiver that you can leave campus to go to seminary. So. so obviously by design, the church set this up as right. close as they could to the school. Yeah, in smaller towns where yeah. there's not that many high school kids, the trade-off is kids will go to a local church house that's nearby or even go to a member's home if it's a really small group. There's an expectation that you graduate from seminary. And so that's the expectation of a young LDS person. Yes, I went to seminary all four years. As a matter of fact, my last year I was um, being a nanny my senior year of high school and I did homeschool seminary oh, really? for that period of time. Yep. So I worked in my workbook and then went back and had to go have meetings with the seminary teachers to make sure I was doing everything so that I could graduate from seminary. And you were you were really in it too, if I oh, remember right. Yes. So <laughs> I was going to say in Utah, you could varsity letter. Mm. Like, you know, in sports, varsity, you could varsity letter in seminary. And yes, I was that person. And I did varsity letter the three years that I was like 
in the buildings. And then when I did the homeschool, it wasn't really like as possible, if I remember right. But mm-hmm. I didn't my that senior year because I wasn't at the high school anymore. But I did those first three years. Yeah, but I totally varsityed in religion classes. So Yeah. And so how did that so when you were at seminary, because mm-hmm. I didn't experience this, when yeah. you were at seminary, what were the other kids doing during that time? So other kids just got to take more credits. So you kind of had that expectation. I mean, in Utah schools, they really made sure that you were able to get the credits in to still graduate, even while missing a period. But it was something that was taken into consideration. Other kids would have that extra period to be able to go towards their high school credits to graduate. Okay, so you were getting less credits than them because you were going to seminary, right? Yep. Like the seminary didn't credit to anything in your high school experience. No, no. The the state couldn't give credits for, like it didn't, yeah, it didn't go on our high school transcript at all. Okay. is basically, excuse me, like he said, a release time where we were just released. And in Utah, that a lot of times they're in the same, they're in a parking lot. In the same parking lot, yeah. So not even across the street like this, like at my high school, it was in the same parking lot as the school. And so it was like a big sidewalk between the school and the seminary building. So you didn't even have to cross the street. So in seminary, is it all Mormon doctrine? Is that what's being taught? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, and by that, I mean like every year. So each year of high school, you have four years of high school. Each year you studied a different scripture. So okay. Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. The four and main ones. Yeah, the four main ones. And so every year, and then it would just like rotate so that no matter what, by the time you were done with high school, you'll have gone through each four of those. Hmm. And then like, so you have your normal lessons. It's pretty typical. It's similar to Sunday school, but I would say that it's a lot more fun and geared towards teenagers. So there were always like the really cool the cool seminary teachers ah. that would like make it really relatable and fun. You'd have like certain activities and stuff. They definitely try to make it more engaging than like Sunday school in church. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I what I did experience, and I don't know if he will mention this or not, is Institute. Yep, which is seminary for when you're in college. Yeah, so once I returned from my mission and went to college, I did go to Institute and that was my experience, but that was a lot different, I think. I mean, most people attending the Institute classes were already married or seriously dating someone and about to be married or something like that. So it was a very different experience, I would think, than what seminary was. Yeah, I went to Institute a little bit. We went to the same college and that Institute building was in the parking lot of the college as well. Right. So it's, again, in Utah, very closely tied, closely related within high school too. So you had like the normal lessons if you're just going and on the roll and making mm-hmm. sure you're there for your release time. It's just normal and you can graduate that way. They did have the graduation though, mostly came down to attendance. But if I remember, I feel like we got grades a little bit. I have to remember that. I don't know because again, I varsity. So to be get like your varsity letter in it, you had to go above and beyond. So like every year I had to memorize, I want to say it was 35 scripture passages. Wow. I had to... Do like still, I, Do you still remember those? Oh, goodness. A lot of them. If, wow. if the scripture starts, I can almost always finish them. So within wow. the Bible, there was like 35 Bible verses that I had to have completely memorized. You had to read through the entire book from cover to cover. And then you had like other requirements that you had to do. So it was a pretty extensive list to be able to to letter in those. You read through the Bible from cover to cover? Yeah. That's a lot of reading. Yeah. They, oh, never mind. So it was Old Testament, New Testament, because now I'm remembering. Okay, so they split those It was those Old up. Testament, New Testament, and Book of Mormon, and then Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price were one year. 
because the only one that I didn't finish reading through all the way was the New Testament because it was my senior year mm. and I was off nannying and went to college early. And so when not being in the high school, um, I didn't, I still graduated from seminary, but it wasn't the same level. So yeah, that was the only one I think I didn't, I didn't finish, but yes, Old Testament. Most importantly, yes, I made it cover to cover Old Testament when I was like 15 years old. Right. And Book of Mormon, obviously, multiple times because they want you to read that as you're reading the other scriptures as well. You're always hmm. supposed to be reading the Book of Mormon. Nice. Yeah. Well, I know what you're all thinking. Are we ever going to get through this video? No, I'm Probably just kidding. Not. What you're actually thinking is, what about the teachers in, in seminary and institute? What, <laughs> how do they get that? That is actually a job, a paid yes. job, paid by the church for these teachers to be there teaching the children. And a lot of adults. people want it. A lot of people want yeah. it. It's hard to be able to be able to become a seminary or an institute teacher. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Do you know if they get paid well? I don't remember. Entry level is just okay, but the more education you get, the more, because I knew that like the favorite seminary teacher that everybody loved in my high school, like he got his master's degree and the more education you get, the more you get paid. Hmm. So like he was going to school at the same time, um, institute, gets paid more normally that feeds in from seminary yeah so like your base is going to be the seminary teachers and then they work themselves up to like a seminary principal and then they go to institute and then they can work up into the institute so i'd say similar to like a teacher honestly yeah okay so if i'm not mistaken i ended up with an institute teacher that was your seminary teacher yeah I think I remember that. So, and I think oh, he was one of your favorites as well. Yeah, so, he was. Anyway, that was interesting to see. I mean, it was later in Institute, but it was the same person that I guess had graduated from seminary. Anyway, And you fun. grow like pretty close bonds to your seminary teachers. Again, a lot of them, in order to be a seminary teacher, you really have to have the personality of like working with the youth. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are really cool people. They're making the gospel very relatable to you, which mm -hmm. is really cool. And then... Yeah, I don't know. There's just this like deeper connection with them than a lot of times than your church leaders too, because they don't live in your neighborhood. So like when you go to church and you're going to Sunday school and young women's, like they're your mom's friends, right. <laughs> they're your parents' friends, they're in your neighborhood, they're your best friend's mom. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of connection. So a lot of kids take a lot of refuge in like going to the seminary buildings and talking if you had struggles or problems or questions about a lot the, of times about the about church, the church yeah. you would go to your seminary teachers i'd say they were also more open to questions because yeah. they like encouraged kids to ask questions because they're really trying to help kids get ready for missions a lot yeah. of the time so a lot more open to questions and stuff anyway right. that's a long explanation of Moving seminary on. now you actually are thinking are we ever going to finish this <laughs> <laughs> you go to class they have tests but i i thought they were easy because you know the material really and you do all the things and you oh yeah there were go tests to a graduation we got ceremony. grades you wow. get a certificate <clears throat> here's the thing that everything that i'm talking about from the temple work to going to seminary is by design like the church's emphasis on kids is so important that from birth till they become adults they want them to stay they want and I'm going to use this word, but it's indoctrinate. Indoctrinate the, the kids at a young age, all the way through high school, um, so that they will be members for life. And it's an it's a, it's a, um, important mission of the church. Indoctrination normally has such a negative connotation with it, like, oh, they're being indoctrinated. But 
anybody who is in the church, like teaching your children and rearing them in righteousness is something that all the scriptures say all the time, right? That your right. job as a parent is to teach your children in righteousness. So mm-hmm. in the, if you are a parent within the church, in your mind, you have all these resources and tools to help teach your children and rear them in righteousness. Yep. Because there's a lot of members leaving and this is the, the next generation and they have to p- pass that baton to, to them or to somebody. So they're, they're putting all their eggs in that basket. So Todd, the time has finally come. The big question, <laughs> why'd you leave? Why does one leave at the age of say 42, 43 is when you left? Yep, about that. So I think everyone's different in their, in their journey. But mm-hmm. uh, for me, um, it, it came out to be truth claims. So um, growing up, you're taught a, a certain narrative of how church history, um, how it was. And I learned later in life that the story was uh, very, very different. And then with that, what became very problematic with how things really were how the church came to be and it's starting with joseph smith and um his first vision as as the church calls it where right he was visited by god father and son jesus christ um we were told a certain story or narrative of that but reality it uh, was very different um and then things like the book of mormon how- or did, was it? No, I'm just kidding. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of theories about what that was like, but Joseph Smith himself did tell multiple different sides of the story, which lead people to wonder what was the actual first vision like, because there are a lot of different views and stories on that. Well, and if anybody wants to look this up, because this is totally, I mean, I'm sure because truth claims is this guy's thing, which would have been my guess because of how like even Keely is about things. Right. It would that would have been my guess as to his reasoning um and then that's similar for us so i will just tell you that if you have been like i didn't know there was any other version of the first vision at all you can find that out on lds.org or i think now it's church of jesus christ.org most likely lds.org still works anyway on their website you can go and look up there are five recorded versions of the first vision i've personally read through them all i would encourage anybody who's wondering like what is he even talking about here you can go and read them. They are differing. Two of them are actually written by Joseph Smith. The other three are like scribes writing or people retelling the story. So you can go through and read those for yourself yeah. and see what you think and see whether or not it is similar or different. I would say most one. people probably don't know there are different views on the first vision. I did not know that. All growing up in the church, again, varsity lettering in seminary, going to institute, going to church every single day, I had no idea that there were different versions at all until about five years ago. And so that was something that was a little shocking. I was like, what? But I was grateful that at least I could just find documents. You can find them right on the church website and you can read through them for yourself. Yeah. How the Book of Mormon uh, came to be. The church taught that um, an ancient prophet named Moroni buried the plates in upstate New York, near where Joseph Smith uh, was raised. Book of Mormon stories occurred somewhere in South America or Central America, and he traveled thousands of miles with super heavy plates to New York. There's that, and then the way that the Book of Mormon was translated (laughs) was um, very interesting. We were told as members that he he was given what's called a Urim and Thummim, 
And the way that it was depicted in like church art was um, comparing them to spectacles or glasses. But the reality was, or is, that he, Joseph Smith, uh, used a rock and a hat to um, translate the Book of Mormon. So literally he would put a stone in a hat, like an Abraham Lincoln type hat, and stick his head in the, in the hat and words would appear on the stone of what the, the golden plates would say. Okay. Oftentimes the plates weren't even in the room uh, where Joseph and his scribe was, was translating. So then you ask the question, well, why were the plates even needed after all if he had, actually didn't use them? Okay. Okay, so I'm not gonna pause for every single one of the, well, I might actually, I can't lie. So, <laughs> no, no promising there. <laughs> no promises there. I will say, so all of these different things, for those of you who are on the outside and just have, you know, don't have any connection or ties to Mormonism, it's easy to look at even the stories that the church had originally or that you hear and be like, that just sounds crazy that he found golden plates, you know, but when you're raised in it, you believe that so wholeheartedly. And what he's talking about are things that now the church is trying to be more transparent in. Right. But a lot of these huge people leaving in waves from the church, a lot of it is because if you've been raised, like myself, I'm a good example of this, if you've been raised your whole life and you feel like you know the doctrine so well and you've been sharing it and preaching it to others, and then you find out that there's these huge things, like huge important details and stories that you were never told, you feel lied to. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with it. It's not even like if you had been taught you know, when he's talking about the seer, it's called the seer stone. Yep. And the church has come out. The church actually has pictures of Joseph Smith's seer stone. You can go and look it up on the church website, what it looks like, how it was used to translate, all of that. If I had been taught that starting at three, year old, three years old, like I was about the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate and the spectacles, if I had been taught that all at the same time, it wouldn't be a shock later. Right. Right. And I think now the youth of the church, they're being told all these details that so many people weren't because so many people left the church over these details. Right. So many people said, I've been lied to. They didn't tell me the whole truth. They must be hiding something. It must be sketchy. Therefore, I'm going to leave. And they don't want that to happen with the next generation. So they right. are becoming more transparent, sharing those type of things that were kind of hidden or pushed into the background before. And we'll see if whether or not that helps or whether or not it continues to hurt. We're not really gonna know until probably the next generation because I think it's people our age that feel like betrayed by that or felt like they were lied to. And so it probably won't be until their kids or their their kids' kids have the full transparency, whether or not having that knowledge from the beginning makes it okay, or whether or not they say, hey, a rock and a hat glowing to decide and tell the translation of these plates is too far-fetched right. for me and my faith and that still doesn't work i don't know i can't be the judge of that but i feel like for a lot of people it's just the transparency around it had you you were taught about the <laughs> seer stone though right that it existed just that not that he used it in the way that they are saying now or were you not told about the seer stone nope, at all i was not told about the seer stone at all i want to say i'm trying to remember back because it's been a while since i was in seminary i believe we heard that Joseph Smith might have had a seer stone, but it being used in any way, shape, or form for the translation of the Book of Mormon was 
I was absolutely not taught any of that. Yeah. Hmm. No. So yeah, we. Uh, I guess it may, it may have come from the FLDS when I was growing up in the FLDS. That yes, I was familiar with that the seer stone existed. That Joseph Smith had this stone. I was not taught though that he would put it into a hat and look into the hat for the words of you know of what it was saying on the plates. I'm kind of with him here, though. I don't really understand why the plates were necessary if he could ultimately just use the stone and, and read every, everything off of the plates. So from what I was told, do you want the LDS answer to this? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. So from what I was told, he did start by translating, by actually like looking at the plates with the Urim and Thummim. Mm -hmm. And then after a certain point, he became so in tune with the spirit and with the book that then he was able to not have to use it okay. anymore. So after after he gained experience with... Experience and knowledge made it so that he no longer needed it. With using the plates at first mm -hmm. and then made it so he didn't need it anymore. That's what I've been told. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. A funny story, well, I mean, it's, now I have to look back and laugh a little bit, <laughs> is that... I defended the church against this theory years mm. ago. So I had a friend who told me this that wasn't LDS, you know, one of those non-believers that are going to try to make me look silly. And they were like, I had heard that, you know, he used a stone and a hat. And I was like, that is absurd. That's so stupid. You think that we'd really fall for that? Da -da. Anyway, so like I was hardcore defending the idea that, that there's no way we did that. I've never heard of that. And I've been raised LDS my whole life. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I was like very adamant against it. And so now if that person is watching, I apologize. You were right. I was wrong, but I really did not know. That's how much I didn't know. And that's the thing too is I I know that I've fought for my beliefs in the past that I was so convinced of and then later learned, oh no, that wasn't the truth. And so that's that's why now my stance is the more I learn, the less I know. And I stand by that. I, I, at this point, I don't claim to know the truth fully about anything religious or or all of that because... I'm constantly learning more about different religions, different beliefs, and what I believe is changing because of that. So when when we've learned the hard way that when you know for sure that that what you have is the only truth, later on you can be proven wrong, and that is very hurtful. Yeah, and I think that's part of the painful experience, right? Whether you feel lied to, whether you feel like it was guilt by omittance, like not necessarily, they didn't lie to me. They just didn't tell me the whole truth. Right. That still hurts pretty deep. And so that adds this certain amount of pain. Like it's it's painful even in a faith transition before you make the decision whether or not these truth claims are going to break my faith or if they're going to be faith promoting whatever they're going to end up being yeah. even before that no matter what learning things like that is so hard and it is painful and it does feel hurtful yeah um so there's lots of different uh, problematic things about how that book of mormon was translated okay sorry i also have <laughs> sorry 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 i also have to say though that just because some things are problematic for some people does not mean that's going to be problematic for everyone. True. So there are different true. things, truth claims. I just want to throw that out there because I think he's going to go through a few more truth claims. We've already covered a couple and that can be completely different. There can be somebody who, and just, I'm just going to throw out an example. 
in this situation with the seer stone, there are going to be people who say, listen, I already believed that a breastplate and spectacles helped Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon. I believe he was a prophet of God, that God spoke directly to him and visited him in person. If he ended up using a seer stone because that's what was easier for him at a later point, why would I have a problem believing that? Right. And, and, and that's valid. Yeah. Like, if you believe all those other things, having a seer stone, like, there's going to be people who say, how could that make or break your faith? Just yeah. as easily as there's people who's going to say, they lied, how could that not break your faith? Like, yeah. either way is perfectly valid in what people choose to believe. It just depends on the person and what's going to hit their heart in certain ways. Right. And everyone can make sense of things differently, right? Mm -hmm. Based on your personal experience, based on all of that, you can look at certain things and make sense of it or interpret it in a way that either, like you said, could break your faith or make your faith even stronger in certain things, right? Okay. And then you ask the question, well, where are those, uh, where are those uh, plates today? Can we examine them, you know? Uh-huh. But the, the story is that um, when Joseph Smith was done, he, the angel took them back to heaven, I guess. So we don't have a way to validate or that verify. would have been in like 1840 something. Uh, I used to know this, but it's been, I've been out for four years. But I think this was in the 1820s. I think the Book okay. of Mormon came out prior to the church being established, okay. which was okay. in 1830. Okay. So in the late 1820s is when the Book of Mormon was, uh, was published. To kind of put context is like Beautiful I was going scenery. through, mm -hmm. life was hard for me. Lots of stress in life. Lots of, uh, you know, with having a family and work and church responsibilities, just stressed really greatly. A lot of stress. And so when you find out, like for me, there was more uh, first vision um, uh, stories or how it came to be, which doesn't jive with the, the churches. Um, story, it like struck me like, what? And so you're kind of shocked. And so you're like, I'm believing. So I'm going to dig deeper and figure this out, resolve my concerns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then when that happens is you're, you're, uh, you're going down a rabbit hole, as we say, you find, you think you resolve one thing, but you find another and another, another issue, another issue. And so like, you're just neck deep in just mess of things that are true, but you were never taught as a member. Sound familiar? It sounds very, very familiar. Rabbit hole is the term that I always use as well. And along with what he's saying, I love that he did mention that the very first thought that you have as a true believing member is because we are taught to search, ponder, and pray. And so the first thing when you find out something is, I feel like when you've been raised in the church, your first instinct is I'm going to deep dive in this so I can find the answer and have my my faith promoted. And I remember yeah. just recently looking back, and I'm very glad that through our faith transition, I kept a very good journal. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing and I was reading recently and it was like, I am so excited for these opportunities for Sam and myself to to find these answers to our questions. And we are going to come out on the other side of this with such a strong faith and with such a stronger testimony than ever before. And I'm just so excited basically for the opportunity to find answers to our questions that I thought was going to lead to a strong and stronger testimony than we already had. Right. And just like he said, that's your first thought when you go into it is, oh, I'm gonna 
dive deep into this and get to the bottom of it and, and feel even more yeah. sure of my testimony. Yep. So what's going through your head at this time? Like the further you go into that rabbit hole. Well, the, the context is like, I've been a member my entire life. Yep. And I put my blood, sweat and tears into this. And like, it has to be true. Like it, it better be true. Mm -hmm. And like, I'd be learning these things and like in the back of your mind you're thinking, dude, is it really true? Like you're, you're like questioning and doubting like, like crazy. Your mind's going in overdrive. So like, it was crazy. And like, I didn't tell my wife, I was scared to tell her. Okay. Because like, when you're a member and if a spouse leaves, um, that can break apart your family because traditionally in some cases, a wife or a spouse, one spouse is loyal uh -huh. and they'll leave you. And um, then there's the dynamic where in order to get to heaven, you have to be there with your spouse that you're sealed to in the temple. So it's all interrelated and just a complicated web of like requirements and, and work. And when you lose your testimony mm -hmm. and you have this uh, integrity within yourself, like I can't be a part of something that isn't true, uh, you break, you fall apart, like emotionally. That's what happened to me. How long? Yeah, I think that's a good description of it. Him not telling his wife is something that's common, I yep. feel like. Um, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because, and this is something, I think the reason that I was so, no, I know the reason that I was so transparent with Sam about my questions. One, I didn't think that it was gonna, that my original questions that I had, I did not think for a second would end up into a huge, faith journey transition. I thought it was a very simple question. I still went to Sam with that question in particular because I watched my parents go through this. When my dad had a faith transition and he was afraid to tell my mom about it. And so he didn't say anything to my mom until he completely didn't believe anymore. And so when he told her that he didn't believe any of it, it was the biggest shock and it did almost tear apart my family yeah. and even though they're still married now and they're better than ever now it was a dark period of time for the whole family watching my parents relationship go through that and them almost divorcing i mean writing up papers for divorce before and it's just and deciding they couldn't go through with it thank goodness thanks mom and dad if you're watching this thanks for not <laughs> i'm glad that they were able to work through it but yeah. it is so earth shattering because for my mom, if my dad is not a worthy priesthood holder and a worthy member of the church, it meant that she couldn't be in the celestial kingdom with God. And as a woman, you have to be married to a worthy priesthood male. So it threatened my mom's views and ideas of her eternal salvation and her eternal life with her family was now shattered. How could somebody not emotionally be completely tore up about that? You know, she couldn't just be like, oh, okay, you don't believe it? Sounds good. No, okay, you not believing, not only did you not tell me while you were going through these thoughts yeah. and processes yourself, but now you're breaking apart everything that I hold dear for my eternities, you know? You have to also be understanding of those that fear to tell their spouses. 100%. Because they are afraid that if they say, hey, I'm having these doubts and questions about my belief, 
especially if it's a, a couple that has been through the temple. They made those covenants together. Mm -hmm. They promised not only with each other, but with God that they would hold true to those covenants till the end of their days and then beyond into the afterlife, right? So if you are doubting, the last thing you're going to want to do is tell that person that I am starting to believe differently about these things 100%. because you're so afraid that it's going to shatter their world. Exactly. And, and destroy them and destroy the relationship that you have with them. And so it's understanding why people wouldn't want to. But my golly, the first question you have, the first doubt you have, try to as soon as possible when the doubts are just beginning that is the time to talk yeah because then you can do it together you can both have you can smart start small and work through questions together whether it's becoming stronger and regaining more faith in the church together or both leaving the church but if you wait until it's too late and you are at 100% that you no longer believe, and you still have this spouse over here that has no idea that you've ever had any questions at all, and then you show up and say, eh, I actually don't believe in any of it. That's where you're just letting off a bomb. Well, and I, I would say too, like in the, in the case of my mom and dad, it's not even just a, I don't believe in it anymore at this point, no matter what, like I know in my dad's case, Again, like you said, he didn't share for so long because he knew it was going to be earth shattering. And just yeah. like Todd saying, there is the chance that your wife is going to leave you and divorce you over it, right? Oh, That's yep. a very yeah. real possibility. So much that it was, it took to a point where my dad like couldn't deny what he believed any longer mm -hmm. before it finally came out. You know, it didn't come to a, pl a place where he was just nonchalant and was like, eh, I don't believe it anymore. So now I'll finally say it, those consequences were still looming over his head that entire time until it came to a point where he was basically straight up asked and had to confront it and then... Right. But I will say, you know, I understand why my dad took so long. I understand both sides. I understand why my mom was so upset and why it was so earth shattering. The whole dynamic I understand. It's one of those where you can look at other people's experiences and you can learn and grow from them. And that, I guess I'm telling that whole story because ultimately for me, when I had my very first question, even though it was small and I didn't think it was a big deal, I did go to Sam because I had seen what not talking to your spouse about your questions and through that journey would do to a family. And I didn't want that to happen to us the same way that it happened to my parents. Yeah, I feel that we're very lucky. I would say that we were able to do that together back back to what i just said i don't another thing that we have to remember too is that even if a spouse goes to their husband or wife and even if it's the smallest question at all and they start going through that together that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to end up on the same page or yes. even in the same book and so that is a concern once again that someone might have even bringing it up to begin with that you know what who knows where this will end up and if we can't agree will this will Break this tear us apart but i think that people will have a higher likelihood of staying together if they are communicating from the very beginning just from what i've seen yes What's this period lasting for when you, you start going into the rabbit hole you're you're thinking to yourself things don't add up exactly you're going um, deeper you're having this stress and this pressure 
of everything that you've ever thought in the teachings, yeah. now you're not believing. So I think this started for me in like 2015. Okay. The doubts. And um, a culminating moment for me was, um, again, my, the foundation of my testimony was in the reality of this church. I, I'm a part of this church because it is true okay. that these things happened. Okay. That Joseph Smith is and was a prophet of God. The Book of Mormon is the Word of God. So in 2016, um, with my employer, I went on a business trip to Ohio, a town called Kirtland, Ohio is a famous church history site. That's where the very first Mormon temple was built. There is the story where God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph and his close associate Oliver Cowdery. And they, in a sense, had their prayers answered and confirmed. So I thought, since Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery receive a physical manifestation uh -huh. of God the Father and Jesus Christ appearing to them in this, in this temple, I, at least in 2016, was praying for and hoping for like a spiritual manifestation, something that would tell my soul that all that I've, I've come to believe as a, a, a young boy till then is true. I wanted to get my testimony back and where better place than the Kirtland Temple, the very first temple in the modern dispensation. And uh, I didn't get anything. No confirmation whatsoever. So, but that, that's the thing is like, that's what you're trained to do. You pray for answers and the spirit will tell you. Okay. And uh, I didn't get it. <laughs> Where to begin? Where to begin? So when he talks about the fact that that's what we're trained to do mm -hmm. is to pray. Like I said, we search, ponder, and pray, right? So when in our spiritual journey, when I first started having questions, Sam and I started praying together. And yeah, there's certain ways that you go about within Mormonism that you... It's a very organized church. And so there's certain ways that you were taught to be able to get answers, just like he said. And, you know, we prayed together for answers to our questions. Yeah. We also went to local leadership because that's another thing that you're told you can do. We met with the state. Do we meet with the bishop or just the state I president? I think just the state president. Because of the calling I had yeah. in the church at, the, at that time, it was the person directly above me in leadership was the stake president, so we went there. Yeah, because normally, typically in a congregation, you have the bishop and then, uh, you know, over each ward, and then there's multiple wards in a stake. Um, Sam was what they call the elders quorum president mm -hmm. in our church within our ward, and so he kind of worked more hand-in-hand -hand with the bishop, and he got his calling from the stake president directly, right. so that's why we went to stake president. So we why, went... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, so the priesthood holder above me would be the stake president. So that's where we went directly to him. And we yeah, went we, twice, we went twice. We went twice. We wanted so badly, so badly to gain more faith in the church. Mm -hmm. At that time, we were so sure of the truthfulness of it. We wanted nothing more than, become, than to become stronger members after we had gone through this uh, yeah. process and learned more. 
And we also went to the temple. Like he was saying, he went to the Kirtland, Ohio temple. Mm-hmm. And we went to our local temple in St. George. And we're going there because we're also told that, you know, that's the house of the Lord. And that if you are praying and trying to receive answers there, there's no, literally taught there's no place on the earth where you can be closer to God than right. in his house. It's yeah. literally a physical place where god's presence can dwell and so we went there very frequently also to ask our questions and to pray to god and to try to feel his guidance as well so when he's talking about going to the kirtland temple that had been a very cool experience and you know it went a certain way for him and it went a certain way for us but i just wanted to re-emphasize that there's certain things as a true believing member that you go through certain processes and i think if i can say there's one thing that after having left the church that sometimes feels a little frustrating because most of the time I don't feel frustrated, but is that I think a lot of times the amount of effort that is put into searching and pondering. I know he said earlier that president Nelson said that people who leave are lazy learners Mm. that hurt me a lot as well. That hurt a lot. That's just not true. Because it is just not true. And I feel like more of the people that we know that have left as well, it's the exact opposite the amount of diligence, the amount of effort that we put in to stay, the amount of asking the right questions to the right people, going directly to our Father in heaven in his house on earth, according to what we believed then, you know, going through all that. And then when you leave and people say, oh, well, you're just a lazy learner or and we oh, shouldn't you listen wanna, to you or you yeah. just want to sin or you just want to sin or you want to have your free days on Sunday, all of these different things that you hear that are so, so extremely hurtful. hurtful to us because we tried so hard. We were, we were working double time to stay in it. We were working double time because we wanted to confirm our faith and to become stronger in the end. And just because the outcome was different, just because we learned more and learned things that we didn't think were possible to be able to learn, mm-hmm. even within the church's website and the information that they are sharing that were hurtful you know it doesn't it doesn't mean that we wanted this we didn't want to leave Mm-mm. no so yeah so. so it's very hurtful like you said when president nelson says stuff like that or when members of the church have excuses because in their minds they can't fathom why someone would leave and so they try to come up with the easiest quickest answers oh it must be because of this they must have somebody must offend it that's another one people will be like oh did someone offend you that's a and big i'm one. like that's a big no one. one offended me like no one offended me my word was great the people are great like i love the people in the church like no one offended me it wasn't this it was you know but it's also i feel like people are scared to ask why we left a lot of times and so no one ever really knows the true reason because they're scared to ask why they don't want to really know and so people make assumptions and then we're just lazy learners it it kind of falls into the category of looking in the wrong places once you once someone leaves the church they are now in a way against the church in in church members eyes in a way that's just kind of how it turns that's out where, to that's be. where you get placed you get put in this category of now you're an ex-mormon so therefore we don't want to listen to you right and so people don't really want to go to an ex-mormon and say hey why did you leave because now in their mind at least a lot of people are told that they're going to receive all of this false information from this outsider or this apostate this person that has chosen to leave so well, yeah, yeah. Well, and it doesn't help when in general conference, like he said, also told, you know, don't take advice from people who have left. Mm. 
they're lazy. Like when you get all those labels and those labels come directly from the LDS prophet themselves, like I can't blame them for listening, but it is very hurtful. Yeah. At the same time, like I'm doing all these things and I tell my wife, Sarah, that uh, I'm just going to go to church history sites. It'll be fun. I'm here in Ohio. I cannot do this. Okay. And, but I'm just like reeling inside. Like this is why I'm going. Fast forward to 2019, oh, uh, we moved into wow. a new ward. Basically in that ward, um, an older man, he was alleged to be a sexual predator. It was on the news and it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, for me. I felt at that point I can come true to my wife of my uh, concerns about the truthfulness of the church, but also these problematic issues. Mm -hmm of what's happening right then in 2019. We witnessed firsthand how the church at a local level uh, tried to sweep this under the rug. And the, the idea where if this really happened back in the early 80s of this, um, of this event, how come as members we were never told this? How come does this man have callings in the ward hmm. where he was on, on a small period of time was teaching Sunday school to 12 to 14 year olds, which my son was in that class at least once because he was like a substitute teacher, if you will, okay. for a Sunday. That was the cascading event where Sarah and I came together. She knew my concerns. I'm glad he told I his wife. Those concerns. Yeah. She researched and we as a couple decided to speak out about what was happening. That was totally not acceptable of the behavior of the, of the church. And our local leaders, I feel, was just doing what the top leaders in church headquarters were having them to do. Just cover up, not talk about, have it quietly disappear like it never happened. As a member of the church, you do not speak badly against the church. My wife and I, Sarah, were outspoken. We, we even were part of a uh, initiative called Thrive where we invited people who were going through some troubles with the church, like faith crises and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we would have monthly meetings at our house just to offer love and support. I believe Thrive is the organization with Mormon stories, right? I think so. I've definitely heard of Thrive, but I, just, we're not associated or know much about them. So I, I think so, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And I, we don't have a lot of experience or knowledge about the sexual abuse cases. I, kn I think I know which one he's talking about here in Arizona. Mormon Stories definitely has more about those. If that's something that you're interested in, you're wondering where you can find out more information about that. Yeah. I know that Mormon Stories, and I believe Cults to Consciousness as well, has some of those stories. Um, we don't really cover those stories. They're not really in our niche. But yeah. if you're looking for any more information on that... Right. That's where that comes We from. hear about these things, but we haven't really done a ton of research to get all of the facts straight. Yeah. Our local leader, I think in his mind, had enough where he threatened um, excommunication. Ooh, we're going to hear about mind, this. We, it's his responsibility to defend the church. And okay. what we were doing was speaking bad against the church. Excommunication is a very barbaric ritual where you basically like you're going to court in real life and you go to like this boardroom type room where um, 15 men sit in front of you and it's a, just a 
barbaric and ugly practice. So instead of that, we as a family decided to take our power back and resign. And mm -hmm. with all this, I quickly realized that, in my opinion, there is bigger issues within the church. There's okay. harm against young people, uh, people who identify as LBG LBGTQ. There's just um, allegations and uh, issues of sexual assault that are happening in the church. Um, so the church is not a safe place, unfortunately. Can I throw something out there? And I want, I want you to get your thoughts on this one. Whenever you put millions of humans together, you're going to get the sexual predator. You're going to get the anti-LGBTQ. You're going to get all types. How is it different than humanity out of the church in that sense? I would That's say... a good question. That is a good question. Um, because the church claims to be the one true church on the earth and who is led by God, this is God's church, Okay. led by a prophet who we're taught that will not lead his people astray, that will, we're taught that local leaders are called of God, God oversees everything within his church. Uh-huh. So the question you gotta ask yourself is, if these things are happening under God's watch, and these, in some cases, these allegations are behind closed doors of bishops or other church leaders. How many times should that happen in God's true church? The answer is zero. It should happen zero times, but that's not the case. Again, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, by their own admission, has set the bar to the highest. They are the one and only true church and a loving, in my view, a loving God who oversees it cl this close would never allow such harm upon some of his children because we're all God's children. That's on that, babe. Yeah, well, oh man. There's a lot of different ways to take this. First of all, you could say the same about all human all humans, that that if there is a loving Heavenly Father up there watching out for us, why do bad things happen to anyone, right? It's I don't think that he's going to protect people in this one church, even if it is the true church, and ignore everyone else if he's a loving, loving Heavenly Father. So that's a, you know, to, to say that it should never happen within the church, I think that to Peter's point, you put enough people together, there's going to be the bad people. That being said, because the different callings and the things within the church are, we were told, were all done through inspiration, meaning that when a bishop is called to the calling of a bishop, he is called by God in their eyes, right? The leader above him receives inspiration from God and is told this person is to be called of God to be the bishop over this ward. That is what was taught. So to, to Todd's point here, if God is calling this person and knows that this person has these issues, why? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> why? Yeah, I would say, yeah. Yeah. The only thing I would add to yours is I think most people would agree that within, you know, millions of people in society, if a church member 
does those type of things. I don't think those are the issues that ex-Mormons have with the church. If it's a random member that abuses whoever, right? Mm -hmm. Those aren't the people or the situations that ex-Mormons are worried about. It's when it's systemic. It's when the top leaders of the church tell, you know, have bishops say, you know, they tell the bishops, okay, don't, don't tell the police about right. this sexual abuse case. Mm -hmm. When it's leadership, I think that's when it becomes problematic. Like you said, if the leaders are speaking to God and receiving direct revelation from God, then they should be on a higher level. They should be on a higher pedestal. We put them on a higher pedestal. When you're in the church, you believe that the bishop is called by God, you put him on a higher pedestal. Yeah, again, why would God put a sexual predator in a leadership position? Now, on the local everyday member level, I don't think that's exactly what ex-Mormons are really right. arguing about because those millions of people can do make millions of different choices. But it's right. the it's the leadership problems or the way that leadership handles situations. That's what I was going to say. Is another one where people say, okay, it's one thing if you know the stake president didn't get proper inspiration. You know, you can always say like, oh, that person didn't get proper inspiration or the bishop didn't get proper inspiration. So he let this pedophile that he didn't know about be in charge. Okay, well, that's a bishop's inspiration problem. That's not a church problem, really, right? You can say that. You can cut it off at whatever limb there is. It's, I think, more when the church as a whole or from church headquarters or from the top of the food chain is allowing things to, or when things happen, they're not handling it properly, that it's like if God's really in charge of the, charge of the church, then matters should be handled in the best way possible. Right. And to, and to not turn someone in to the police for something, to try to handle it and say, oh, you know, to, to sweep it under the rug almost in some cases, that's where the issues are. That, you know, if someone is a sexual predator and the church knows about it, the police need to know about it, right? Yeah. And if, this, yeah. if this type of thing is going on, it can't just be held within church headquarters as, well, you know, it happened, but uh, I'm sure it won't happen again. You know, let's let's hide that. And something to note here as well is that, like, for example, and if this is the case I'm thinking of in Arizona, you know, a bishop was told about a father abusing his daughter. And in that case, you know, when bishops hear any type of abuse, they call a church hotline because bishops are not paid. They are a volunteer position and they don't have, they're not psychologists, they're not therapists, they're not, they're not trained in any way to be in charge of issues such as sexual abuse within a family mm -hmm. or physical abuse within a family. These are just men trying to do the best that they can in the church callings that they're given. Yeah. Okay. In and a so, lot of cases, very great men, by the way. We're, yes. not, we're not saying that bishops are bad people. No. We're just lacking in qualification. I honestly, my heart goes out for bishops mm -hmm. because, yeah, because they don't have the those same type of resources to be able to handle really complicated situations that they get dealt in front of them or they get put in front of them. Anyway, but there is a church hotline. So if that bishop calls the church hotline and does what the church says, they're doing that because they believe that the church is led by God. Right. And if that church hotline says no because of the, you know, rules and the laws in Arizona, you don't we're not going to report that. That bishop is just doing what his church leaders are saying and he's going to follow through with that, right? Yeah. And that's when those issues arise of if it's God's church 
and the way that things are handed down the line and taken care of is can be problematic for people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and to think, I mean, I look back and I think why? Why would the church not turn this person in? The only thing I can come up uh, come up with is so that there isn't this bad light shown on the church of, hey, there's these kind of people, especially in some leadership positions that are doing this type of thing, that could make the church look like an unsafe place. That's the only reason I can come up with. Yeah. And if you're... And that makes them look even worse, if because if they're doing it to try to make the church look better over the protection of children, mm-hmm. then that starts making the organization as a whole look when you corrupt. find out that there was someone and it wasn't reported then that's when it looks really bad so anyway yeah that's just a very touchy and difficult topic to even talk about to begin with that kind of thing happening and it it needs to be Breaks handled my heart it needs to be handled differently i know that there have been local church leaders i've heard stories of bishops or, or stake presidents that just handled things the way that they knew it should be handled regardless they said you know what this person needs to be turned in. And in some cases, maybe they lost their calling. I don't know. But they did what they thought they needed to do, and they did it the right way. So there definitely are those people out there. They're always trying to look out for the betterment of everyone around them. Yeah. But then, again, to Peter's point, one last thing is just when the church is that large, then it becomes so much more of an organization that you wonder where the connection with God really lies and how much of it can actually be truly inspired by God. Now, whether or not the church claims to have the direct connection to God and be the one and only truth, I think it's the truth claim that people have more of the issue with. But once an organization grows to a certain point, you're just going to have bad apples and pro- you're just going to have problems. Any organization is going to have problems. Yep. I could no longer walk away. I could no longer look away. And I can't be a part of the organization. Okay. Most Mormons don't believe in any of that stuff, obviously. Being sexual predators, breaking the law. That's the problem with some of these stories, right? Everything can get lumped up into one person or one group. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because it's like, not most people. Is your, your beef is the fact that the hierarchy is willing to cover things. Yeah, my, my beef is, is, is the top leadership. It's not, it's not your local member. And, you know, the local leaders are, in a sense, trained, taught, and conditioned to do the bidding of the top leadership in Salt Lake. So you think the top leadership now is fundamentally corrupt or yes. le- they've gone off the, the rails a bit? Or? Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, it's their financial uh, decisions, the way that they uh, cover up uh, the bad things that happen, because in, in their view, what's paramount is to protect the image of the church. Um, that's the most important thing. So, Okay, sorry. I just had another like epiphany moment, because when people say that the church leadership is corrupt, and this is something that I've had to think about, because I don't believe in the, the doctrines of the church, right? Do I think that President Nelson, though he says things that are hurtful to me, do I think that he's a corrupt person? And when they talk about the leadership, I think in, it comes back to the organization being so big. I don't believe that Elder or President Nelson probably ever heard about that because at this point it's so broad and so big that 
If they said talk to the lawyers and the lawyers are giving advice, I don't know. I just think that the web is so large now Mm -hmm. that it's hard to say whether or not the church sweeping stuff away or sweeping under the rug. Is that their lawyers? Is that their PR team? Does the prophet even know about those things? Does the leadership of the church... Now, yes, again... The church kind of shoots itself in the foot a little bit with the idea that this is directly straight off from God instead of just a church organization of people doing the best they can. Right. Okay. So they kind of, it's within its essence that it is that way. But at the same time, that's where people can say, but it's supposed to be God's church directly. And so then why could he let things happen? But overall, it still is just a massive organization and quite the web. And you have to delegate so many things to so many people on so many different levels that I just don't, I personally don't believe that like the prophet and his counselors, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles are bad men trying to do bad things. I personally don't. Everybody can have their own opinion on that based on their own experiences. But I think that the web of the organization of the church is so vast and so large at this point that people doing what they believe is best for the church can go in a million different ways. And I do believe when they say sweeping things under the rug, I believe that's happening. But I think that now it's an organization trying to protect itself more than it even is the religious aspect of it. Yeah, I agree. There's so many different hands in the pot at this point, so many different people involved in charge. I mean, there's members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and members of the Seventy that have the ability to make such huge decisions for the church that, like you said, it's likely that the head of the church or President Nelson at this time doesn't even hear about a lot of these things. But at the same time, I feel like eventually he will hear about these things. Once they get big enough. Once they get big enough. And when those things are heard about, changes have got to be made. Yes, that's true. Right? Yeah. Find out who down the line is making these decisions that these certain people don't need to be turned into the police and make some changes. You know, if we hear about things happening right now, and five years later we hear about the same things happening, that's where I have a problem. Because if we're hearing about them in the news, you better believe at that point the leaders, top, top leaders are hearing about them at this point. Yeah, that so, it's a systemic problem. Right. But even if it's not their decision to make the bad, like the bad things that are happening, even if it's not them making the choices to do that, there still needs to be hopefully some big changes made once those things come to light. Yeah, I guess... If you think about it as going back to the idea of it just being a large organization, at the end of the day, the CEO is still always to blame, right? If there's a big enough problem, (laughs) the CEO is going to get booted. Now in a church, in a religion, that's not going to happen. They're not going to kick out Nelson because of things that happen on a smaller scale. But in that same sense, even if the CEO wasn't the person in charge of it because he is in charge of the delegation of this person and that person and that person, it's still the ultimate responsibility does lie on their shoulders. Exactly. Yeah. So they will sweep away and hush the, the bad things that are continuing to occur um, in the church. Is it fair to say, like, if I'm going to make a comparison with that, uh, any big institutional <laughs> organization usually has a hard time apologizing. <laughs> An example would be the U.S. government, right? Good point, Most Peter. Most people would think our invasion of Iraq was probably a bad idea. And our administration 
any of our leaders have never apologized for that to anyone. They said, hey, we got this wrong. We led you guys into something we shouldn't have gone into. Is there that at play in the church? I mean, is, I'm just trying to, I've never been in it. I've never been under this hierarchy, so I'm not familiar with it. Is that a way to compare it? Um, I would just say that, I mean, for example, um, Dallin H. Oaks, who's a part of the First Presidency, he was on record saying years ago that as a practice, the church does not apologize. And it's, in my view, hypocritical, because on one hand, you're teaching members to, um, when you do wrong, you forsake your sin, you repent, you make restitution, you, you strive to do better, and you admit your, your problems and grow from it. But we're not, you can argue that you're not seeing it from the top leadership. Mistakes are made, but they never, they never um, take ownership of it. Those that don't know the 10% tithing, every member must pay. You make 100,000, you need to pay 10? Or is it after you pay your federal state income tax, then you pay 10? Well, Depends I on the family. you pay on your gross. Okay. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, I kind of believe like the more you pay, you know, the, my argument is if you're a millionaire and you pay 10%, $100,000, that doesn't hurt. When you're a family of six and your income is 40,000, and you pay 10%, that really hurts. Really hurts. Mm -hmm. Rent, food, clothing, you know, basic medical needs. You know how much church, the, how much money the church is, is garnering right now. Uh, again, no one knows for sure because they don't share, but it's north of $100 billion. In some investment fund or something? Yeah, in, uh, it's called Ensign Peak Advisors, um, and it's the investment arm of the church. And my understanding is because the church is nonprofit, they don't pay taxes on their gains and it's just the unbelievable return on investment that one can get. And that's just for future temples and whatever else the church needs to spend money on? I think the church's argument is, these are rough numbers, I believe the estimates are somewhere around seven billion that the church gains each year from tithing. Their liabilities or obligations is about six billion, so that difference of one billion goes into this fund and that's how that money grows. And the church hires the very best of investment bankers to okay. make that money grow. Okay. So. But those numbers you don't know to be exact. You no one really knows. Nobody really knows. It's like people who uh, dissect the SEC filings and other public information try to connect the dots. Uh, it'd be nice if the church was transparent and, and yeah. told its members. Yeah. Because they, again, are sacrificing so much. And if there's nothing to hide, why not share? I was just going to say that exact thing. I think for church members, when it comes to the money, I mean, the principle of tithing is something that people are very accustomed to. It's biblical as well. And so it's not something that most church members, most people that I know say, you know, you can't afford to not pay your tithing, the financial blessings, the blessings that you get spiritually for paying your tithing. Right. Right. I think the money thing is something that I never really see people who haven't left talk about or care about because in their minds, I feel like people who are in it, not only are they trusting that the church, they're not giving their money because they're trying to help with this big pot of money. They're not giving their money for anything other than spiritual blessings, financial blessings. And 
to be able to have their temple recommend. That's their focus. What the church right. does with their money, they're just trusting. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Right. And it's when people leave the church that they tend to have a bigger problem with the amount of money that the church has because then they're looking at it from an organization aspect. If you stop, if you take the religion out of the corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then that's when, if you take the religion out of it and you're looking at that bunch of money and you're thinking, why is this necessary? The second coming, I don't think Christ is going to need $100 billion personally. You know, there's all these other aspects of it. I feel like those are very, like I said, more focused on if somebody has left. They're oh, going to yes. feel more strongly about those things. Nobody in the church is caring well, that they have an extra $100 billion. Yeah, well, what exactly, as far as the church is concerned, but when it comes down to something he said here, when it comes down to the family that's paying the tithing, in some cases, even when the family isn't very well off, they still they still look at tithing as a blessing because it's their opportunity to prove their faithfulness to God, even if they are struggling with money. Mm-hmm. I put you first, God. I pay you, and I show you that by by even giving you something physical that is one of the most important things in life to be able to survive. I give some of that away before anything else because I trust that you will take care of me and my family. And you'll even hear people say, I have received so many temporal blessings because of paying tithing. Now, I mean, it's funny, you'll hear people talk about the really wealthy members of the church and say, see how blessed they are for paying their tithing. You don't hear a lot of people talk about the very poor members of the church and how blessed they are for paying tithing. But even the poor members, in a lot of cases, and there's a lot of stories, that they still look at it as a blessing to prove their faithfulness to God, and they don't seem to have a problem paying it. They don't seem to look at the organization of the church as a, as a business sense, and say, oh, look at all this extra money they have, that doesn't seem to bother them at all. No, I do like the last thing that he said, though, about the transparency. And I think that goes back to like the truth claims as well, that a lot of the hurtfulness, or if somebody's in a faith transition, normally they always come across this issue, right? right. And then it's just one more thing to add to the shelf or add to the list of these other things that they've found out. And I feel like it's one more aspect of feeling like you're being not lied to, but the omittance of truth, right? And so when you're going through these truth claims and you feel like there's things that you're finding out that you never knew before, that you feel like they just should have been honest with you, right? And you're dealing with all these other things and you're in this transition and you're just having this super hard time. And then something comes up about the church's money and you feel like it's just one more thing that the church isn't being transparent about. That's when people who leave just feel like it's just one more thing that why can't they just be truthful and honest about it? Why can't they just come out and be transparent about it? Why can't they just give us a number and be proud of it? Because I know from a very young age, my mom always told me, if if someone's trying to tell you to keep a secret, it's because they're doing something naughty. Yep. You know, people don't ask you to keep secrets unless they're doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. I mean, that was just a family life lesson, but I feel like that's a pretty common one, right? Right. That if people are hiding things, it's because something is not right. And you get that same sense as you're going through a faith transition and you're learning historical things. You're like, they hid this. Why'd they hide it from me? It must be because it's not right. And then you hear about the the money stuff and they're hiding it still. 
it must be because something's not right. And there's that sense of it. And it's just one more thing to add and something that just becomes frustrating in that sense. Exactly. And so it wasn't until like five years ago, maybe not even not even five years, like three years ago, that I found out that other churches have on the back of their meeting note, like when you go into the church on the back of their programs, they'll show like the tithing money coming in and where it's going. Mm -hmm. And leave in the comment if your church does that, because I thought that was so cool. Yep. Because I've never seen or heard of that before. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to me. I was like, that's so cool that they would be that transparent and share. I think... The LDS church, it's so huge at this point that if you saw the amount coming in at a local level, you'd be frustrated when your girls' camp budget was like so low. You'd be like, <laughs> okay, how much tiny money's coming in? And we as girls' camp are like having no money in our budget. Hey, maybe it's time to give those girls a little bit extra money and give them, a, you know, a fun trip once in a while. Yeah, like the Boy Scouts did. But that's, <laughs> you know, that's my own personal issue. But um, no, or maybe the members would be like, we don't want to clean the churches anymore. Mm-hmm. We see how much money's coming in. Why is every member a church cleaner? You know, those type of things. So anyway, it's really interesting. We are going to cut this into two parts. There's a lot to unpack here. This is so much to unpack. In the end, we did not make it to the end. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We thought we would, but we are going to cut it off here. And because this is just so much. We're just about, we're just over the halfway mark here with Peter's video. And there's so much. And we're realizing as we go along, we can't just avoid all of these topics. We have to bring up things about them and talk about them. So we want to be able to continue doing that. And we will do that in the second part as well. Yes, which will come out next Friday. But thank you all so much for listening in. And we just appreciate you all for following us on this journey. This has been a fun video, I think. And hopefully we get people ask us all all the time questions about why we left the LDS church or how we feel about this church and hopefully this is kind of shedding a little bit of light on yeah, that for you hopefully y'all. this helps answer some of those questions but thank you all so much for being here we look forward to continuing this on next friday and look forward to talking with you soon we'll talk to y'all soon <laughs>